A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. This Christmas season, learn what the Bible says about why Christmas is important and why the coming of the Son of God means salvation for every man, woman, and child. As a pastor, uh, leading up to Christmas, you kind of know what to preach about and to speak about and all of that. And then you get to uh, after Christmas, and it really kind of depends on where Christmas falls. Now, if Christmas falls on a Monday, which is a good day for Christmas, as a pastor, by the following Sunday, everybody has forgotten about Christmas and is worried about New Year's, so it opens everything up. If Christmas falls on a Tuesday, you're pretty good. On Wednesday, it starts to get a little sketchy. Thursday, you're worried about it. Friday, it's like, ugh. Saturday, worst day forever for Christmas. Worst day ever for Christmas. I mean, it's just the whole time you're thinking about the next day and you're thinking about what am I going to preach about and everybody's still thinking about Christmas and suffering with if you eat turkey on Christmas, tryptophan, uh, overdose, and if you don't eat turkey, you're worried about sugar overdose. And we, If we took a blood sugar check, we'd have the diabetes police all over this place right now. And um, you're a little bit worried about all of those things. And so I was really just praying and, and I didn't feel it would be of the Lord that we would go back to the book of Romans. And so God just kind of led my heart to Matthew chapter two, uh, to the story of the wise men. Now, um, why is it? Well, because they came after Christmas and it's really kind of the first account that happens after Christmas. Now we believe historically that probably this had happened a year or two after the birth of the Christ child. This didn't happen in the manger. You often see pictures depicted of Christ, you know, being surrounded by three wise men and or three kings. And we sing songs about we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. It rhymes well, but it is so theologically inaccurate, it's hilarious. We know that there are probably far more than three kings. We believe they probably came in a band of hundreds, uh, several hundreds, some people believe, some, some say between 300 and even 1,000 that would have come. And they come to worship the Christ child. Well, the account that we have in the um, first 12 verses of this passage of Scripture is very a very, very helpful account for us when it comes to understanding what worship is really all about. And I want to discuss this morning, and just really the next few minutes will not be the longest service in the history of Canyon Ridge, that's for sure, but how the kings worshipped the Christ child. How the kings worshipped the Christ child. Let's read the text and see if you can get some ideas before we get all the way into it. The Bible says, now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And Herod the king, I'm sorry, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests, this was being Herod, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets. 
For thou, Bethlehem, they're quoting the prophets here, for thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent uh, them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And nothing else is said about them. They came on the scene and 12 verses later, we don't hear from them ever again. This story is interesting because it really is two groups of people. The first person that we would see here uh, in verse number one, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. This Herod is known as Herod the Great. He's the first of several Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. Julius Caesar had appointed this Herod's father, Antipater, to be the governor of Judea under the Roman occupation. Antipater uh, managed to have his son Herod appointed as the, the, the word was perfect, or the ruler of Galilee. In that office, Herod, the man that's spoken of in verse number one, was quite successful uh, as a leader in quelling a big Jewish guerrilla band attack, a covert attack, a, a kind of an insurrection, if you will, who these people continued to fight against the Roman rulers who were leading Palestine. And um, during one major attack from the Parthenians, a tribe from the east that many believe the wise men originally came from, or their descendant, or their, their uh, forefathers would have came from, uh, the Parthians came into Palestine and they took it over and they eradicated the whole region of Romans and Jewish leaders, and during that time, Herod went to Egypt. He formed a coalition. He went back, and, and he destroyed or defeated the Parthenians. And when he did, he turned the uh, region of Palestine back over to the Romans. And after that, in 40 BC, he was declared by Octavian and later Mark Anthony with the concurrence of the Roman Senate to be the, here's the phrase, king of the Jews. Now, that didn't happen very often. It was a major event if a man was to be called a king with Roman authority and, and Roman permission. If the Romans identified a man as a king, he was a great, great leader, and that was a, a man with great power. And that's the case when it comes to Herod. Herod invaded Palestine the next year, and, and after several years of fighting, drove the Parthians uh, completely out of the region and, and settled and established his kingdom. Herod was not Jewish, and this caused big problems with the Jews in Israel. He was an Idumene or an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. Jacob is the father of the Jews. Esau is the father of the Edomites, and 
Idumene is another word that we would use for the word Edomite. Herod, in an effort politically to resolve this, married a heiress to the Jewish Hasmonean house named Mariamne, and uh, he was trying to procure favor with the Jews and find um, a coalition of people that were Jewish that would endorse him, or Jewish leaders that would endorse him. Herod was a capable ruler. He was a gifted orator. He was a gifted diplomat. I mean, he, he was a good, good, what people would say, a very gifted political leader. In times of hardship financially on the whole nation, he gave back part of the tax money. I'm just letting that sink in for those of us that know how much taxes we pay. He gave back part of the tax money during times of difficulty. Um, he revived Samaria. He built the beautiful port city. I've been there, uh, Caesarea Maritima, a beautiful, one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to and one of the most beautiful ports I've ever seen in my life. Just absolutely gorgeous. He built that in honor of uh, Caesar Augustus. He built theaters. I have some pictures of some theaters or a picture of a theater here. This is the theater in Jerusalem. He built theaters all over Israel, Caesarea Maritima. Debbie and I went to one identical to this in Caesarea Maritima. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous. He built beautiful theaters. He built racetracks. He built other structures to provide entertainment for the people. He rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem in 19 B. It's called Herod's Temple. He beautified and established foreign cities of the foreign cities of Beirut and Damascus, Tyre and Sidon, and Rhodes, and he even made contributions to rebuilding works in Athens. He built impregnable fortresses, the impregnable fortress of Masada. Uh, just a beautiful, if you ever go to Israel, you need to go to Masada. Just a, a fantastic place where in AD uh, 73, a thousand Jewish defenders committed suicide. Right, they ran off the cliff there in Masada rather than being captured by the Roman general uh, Flavius Silva. But Herod, for all of his good things, was evil. He had a lot of good qualities, but he was cruel and he was merciless. He was incredibly jealous and, subs and suspicious. He was afraid for his position. He was afraid for his power. I mean, he was a diabolical man. Fearing a threat, he had the high priest, Aristobulus, who was Mariamne's brother. He had him drowned. And then he provided a huge state funeral where he faked weeping. He even had his wife killed and then her mother and two other sons of his killed. Five days before his death, not long before the birth of Christ, five days before his death, um, he had his third son executed. One of the greatest evidences of his bloodthirstiness and insane cruelty was having the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested. And they were arrested not long before his death and about the same time period. And, and he had them arrested because he knew there would be no weeping for him when he died. He was so cruel. 
even though he had done kind things for the people, there would be no one to mourn his death. So he gave the order to his men that the moment he dies, they were supposed to kill all of the well-known citizens of Jerusalem that they had arrested. And when he did, they did, and there was great weeping in Jerusalem, and he wanted it to be for him, but none of it was for him. That barbaric act is only exceeded in cruelty by his slaughter that we would read about in verse number 16, 15, 16, 17 of our, te- of our chapter this morning, where he had heard that the Christ child had been born king of the Jews, whereas he that is born king of the Jews, verse number two, and Herod had all of the male children who were in Bethlehem He had all of them killed. And in all the coast and in all the region, all those that were two years of age and under. I mean, think of that. You're a mother with a young son. We have a lot of families in here with boys in the home that are are young, that are in this age group. Imagine if, if soldiers walked into your house this morning and they or this afternoon, and they grabbed your son, and no questions asked, they just killed your son. Why are you doing that? Because, well, Herod told us to do that. That's the diabolical nature of this man, Herod. He's one actor in this scene. They're not actor, but one person in this scene. The other persons in this scene are the wise men. The wise men were not kings, if you will. They were probably, there were more than three, as I said. They were not Jews. In, in fact, they were actually pagans, uh, though many believe they were followers and searchers for the one true God. Uh, they came from the East, which is assumed by most people in the New Testament times to, to be somewhere around Iraq in the day. And they were from a priestly line of people. And uh, they, they were a people that, that would have seen the star about the time of Christ's birth, and they moved from east to west to find the Christ child. They were familiar with the ancient prophecies, we believe, of Balaam that we would read about in Numbers chapter 22 to Numbers chapter 24, when he was ordered by Balak to curse the children of Israel, but he actually blessed the children of Israel. And part of that blessing was prophetic and it prophesied the coming Christ child. Um, I love the fact uh, that the Bible is very, very clear in so many ways about the coming of the Christ child. And there's prophecy throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that give evidence of the coming Christ child. I, I hear people say sometimes, well, I think the Bible is a book of, of fancy. You know, it's just, it's fanciful. It's fantasy. Well, number one, the Bible is not a book. It's more like a library, And the book of Numbers was written about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, and it prophesied 2,000 years before the birth of Christ things about the birth of Christ, just in Numbers 22 and Numbers 24, and about 700 years before the book of Christ, birth of Christ, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, prophesied the coming of the Christ child, and and, uh, the the wise men who would have been near the region of Babylon and had read about Daniel's prophecy and probably studied Daniel's prophecy, they understood that Christ child was coming. I just find it troubling to my soul and discouraging in some way, but laughable in an entire another way when people literally say things like this, the Bible is just a bunch of stories. Well, it's a bunch of story where every single prophecy has come true. 
Find that in Moby Dick. Find that in anything Dickens ever wrote. Find that in, in anything that any of the great writers have ever done. That every single prophecy that was made has come true. Not a single one has been missed that, except for the end times or the eschatological promises that will come true and that are coming true even before our very eyes. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know if the Bible is real, I just think it's silly. Dear friend, I, I exhort you in the name of God to study the truth of the Scripture. Bible is not a bunch of fanciful stories. The Bible is the very word of God written by 40 plus different authors over a 1500 year period on three different continents in three different languages by a variety of different men, kings and priests, shepherds, uh, fishermen, attorneys, tax collectors. It's written by them and there's not a single contradiction in all of it. And most of them never read one another's work. There's not a single contradiction in the entire of scripture and every prophecy has been fulfilled how could that happen well it could only be happened as God said it would happen that his word is inspired or God breathed God breathed this word into existence well there's Wise men were students of the word of God. Even though they were not followers, they were seeking. And when they saw the star, they knew what they had found. Now, as we come to this passage, I think there are four truths that we learn about worshiping God from the wise men. Four truths about worship that are indispensable to worship. Matter of fact, if you're going to worship, I think these are, you can't worship outside of the boundaries of this. Oh, you might add one or two more or a few more or whatever. But I think that we see the absolute imperative nature and necessity for worship in this text. Would you look at verse number two? Now, the wise men have left the east. It's been a two-year journey. Camels are comfortable to ride on if you've never ridden on one, but they're not really fast. You have a whole group of people that are leaving the east, and they're coming west, and they're going through the desert. And most commentators, historians think it took two years, and I would agree somewhere around there. And they come to Jerusalem where the star had led them to Jerusalem. And they, they come in the city, and when you have a, a party of people that's this big in an ancient city, it, it's known. And so because of their position, their authority, and their wealth, they are led to Herod. And they visit with Herod, and they say to him, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, let's remove Herod for a minute and just think of them. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They're saying this to the man who is called the king of the Jews, in other words, I would submit to you, they're not concerned what politicians think right now. I just want to tell you that. Their, their worship is not dependent on whether or not Herod lets them do it or not. I'm just saying. Some people say, is your governor going to let you have church? Somebody said that to me lately. I said, I never asked our governor if he would let us have church. <laughs> but what if the president doesn't let you have church? I never called him and asked him. 
I, and I don't plan on calling him and asking him. I'm just like, oh, President Biden, I'm not going to be rude, but I'm not going to call the dude up. Why? Because I have a much higher authority that commands me to be here. And these men had got their identification papers and they got their mission from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they said, hey, Herod, you're supposed to be the King of the Jews. Well, bro, where's the real King of the Jews? Verse number two, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to, notice this phrase, worship him. We are come to worship him. I want you to notice first this morning, they came with a desire to worship. They came with a desire to worship. They left the region of Iraq. They traveled two years for one fundamental purpose, to worship the king of the Jews, the one that we believe they understood from Daniel and Balak and many other prophecies if they were able to study them. And they had come to worship him. They had come to to show respect to, to fall down before. The word literally means to kiss towards someone or to throw a a token of kiss and respect. In the Persian world, which these men were very familiar with, the idea was of if you were on the same level was to kiss one another, but if you were a, a, a subject of a great person, you would fall to your knees and you would throw kisses into the air as an act of worship. These wise men understood, though they were very wealthy, and though they had great position and prominence, and and though people came to them with questions about life and eternal life and, and, and things of life and all of their great questions, people would come to them. When they saw his star in the east, they understood something, that this is a king like no other king, and we better get there, and we need to worship him because he's a king unlike any king this world has ever seen. The Mayansmen came with this desire to worship. They were specifically looking for a star. They, they wanted to follow it. They wanted to find the king. And they were prepared to worship. We have seen his star in the east, they said. The idea of that phrase is that they had been looking for it. Most commentators believe that, now dads, I want you to hear me for a minute, that for generations... These wise men had been looking for this star that they had read about. Grandfathers had taught it to fathers who had taught it to sons for generations. This wasn't just suddenly a a group of dudes who grabbed a a Bible and read it and were like, hey, let's look for a star in the east. No, no, no. This had been going on. Some believe, and I don't think you could disprove it, for over a thousand years they had been looking for the Christ child. And they were prepared. They weren't just waiting for something to happen. True worship and adoration, listen to me, is born out of a prepared heart. True worship and adoration is born out of a prepared heart. It never just happens. The Bible says in Psalm 57, 7, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. My heart is fixed. What's my heart fixed on? Singing and giving praise. 
Psalm 57, 9, I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. God, I don't care what's going on around me. I'm going to sing to you. I've prepared my heart. Psalm 61, verse number 8, so will I sing unto thy name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Psalm 71, 22, I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O God. Unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou holy one of Israel. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. They were prepared. Their heart was prepared. It wasn't a question as to whether or not they were coming to praise the Lord. They came with a desire, and the desire led them to preparation. You know one of the reasons sometimes churches have to come up with a lot of crazy schemes to get people to get emotionally involved in the service is because people don't come to church prepared. They don't come to church prepared. They're listening to secular music on the radio. They watch TV as soon as they get up. First thing they did on Sunday morning was check their Instagram. Some people, even while I'm preaching, you're checking social media. Like it has something to do for you. When we know that over 50% of everything you see on social media is an advertisement telling you your life stinks. And, and we come to church and we're just not prepared. And then Bernie gets up or somebody gets up at a church across the country to lead in worship songs. And people are like, yeah, this hasn't done, done anything for me. Well, it can't do anything for you. You're not prepared. You didn't come with a prepared heart. You came with a heart that just simply is saying like, bless me now, entertain me. Entertained people are not worshipful people. Did you hear me? Entertained people are not worshipful people. Worshipful people come with a prepared heart to hear the word of God and they desire to worship and they desire to worship the, the, the very king of kings and lord of lords who spoke this world into existence. Far too often people come to church with this mindset. I'm not trying to be harsh on you. I'm just trying to help you a little bit understand what worship is and it's not. Folks come to church with this mindset What's he going to say to make my life easier and better? How's he going to make my marriage easier? How's he going to help me raise my kids? Now, now listen, we want to help make your marriage better. That's why we're having a marriage conference in February. I think you'll be able to sign up next week for it. I should have heard more amens there. And people say, well, we're not doing well. You coming to the marriage conference? No, no, we're not. We're not. There's a crawdad festival in my neighborhood and... I supply the Creole seasoning, Pastor. You know how it is. Priorities, right. I do. How's he going to make our life better? I don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if that's even our calling to make our life better. The reason the church exists in part is it really primarily is to learn more about God. And it's an opportunity to corporately worship the Lord. This is not simply a corporate information gathering place. That's called college. If you want that, join FBI. Not the FBI. Join Faith Bible Institute here at Canyon Ridge. But this is a time of corporate worship. And we're supposed to be prepared for it. 
to some of you that are young believers and old believers and middle stage believers and grouchy believers, could I encourage you to turn the music off? And if you need to listen to music, listen to biblical Christ-centered, God-honoring music that will exalt the name of Christ and prepare your heart for the things of God. They were prepared. And they were focused, verse number two, on worship. We have come to worship him. We've come to revere him. We have come to honor him. We, we've come to, to, to worship the superior one. We have come to, to, to bid his, his, his favor. We have come to bless him. We have, we have come to humble ourselves before him. They're focused on it. Psalm 95, one of the Bible says, Oh, come, let us worship. Oh, let me read it correctly. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Oh, sometimes I weep after a Sunday morning service when I hope well-meaning people, but I think very, very misguided folks come to me and they say, you know, two things. They come to me and they say, ah, I love the music. I don't really care about the message. That always makes the guy who spent hours preparing feel good. We, we just come for the music. We just really love it, and that's why we come. We don't get anything out of the message. <sighs> but we come for the, for the music. As, like, that's all that we have. It's misguided. And then we have people on the other side, Brother Burns, who come and they say, yeah, I can't stand the music. All I want is the message. I don't need the worship. I just need the truth. Can I tell you that, that those are two hands on the same individual, that they're two sides to the same coin, that they're two wheels on the same motorcycle, whatever it is. You can't have one without the other. A corporate worship service consists of worship in song and adoration and praise and submission and worship in preaching and adoration, praise and submission. During both events in the local church, that is what transpires. These men couple hundred of them, in my opinion, we don't know how many, but we know it's quite a few, walked from, rode camels from the east to Jerusalem, bringing gifts for one purpose, to worship the Lord. Why'd you come to church today? I came to see friends. I mean, that's great. I mean, I need fellowship. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But why'd you really come to church? Is that why you came? To see friends? So church is a social function for you? I came so nobody would call me and say, hey, we missed you. Well, I'm glad you like accountability, but that's why you came. I just think we have to ask ourselves the question. Did you come because you wanted to corporately worship the Lord? Because I'm going to tell you right now, that's why I came. I came. I came because it's like, hey, I love the corporate worship that goes on at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church and all Bible preaching churches all over the world. I've corporately worshipped in Cambodia. I've corporately worshipped in Romania. I've corporately worshipped in Fiji. I've corporately worshipped in Japan. I've corporately worshipped in Thailand. I've worshipped all over this country. My favorite place to corporately worship is Hawaii, outside of San Diego. But I love all of them. I've worshipped in places where I don't know the language. I've worshipped in places where I know the language, but I don't know what's going on. I, I've corporately worshipped all over this place. And really, it's born out of a desire to worship God. I wonder, do you have a desire to worship God? 
Is that why you came? That's what the wise men are doing. They teach us that. Not only did they have a desire to worship, notice verse number, um, verse number 10. Verse number 10. And when they had saw a star, now, so here's what happened. The star leads them to Jerusalem. Now, for prophetic reasons, which we don't have time to go into, because I promise you this would not be the longest message in, in the history of Canyon Ridge. But for prophetic reasons, they have to go to Jerusalem. They don't know, by the way, that they have to go to Jerusalem. They have to go to Jerusalem, and they have to tell Herod that they're looking for the one that is born king of the Jews. And then Herod, you know, he's a great politician. Oh, that's great. I want to worship him too. And so Herod calls his wise men. Hey, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Because the star stopped shining over Jerusalem. Where that is he that is born king of the Jews? They look in the Old Testament and they find in the minor prophets that he's going to be born in, in the city of Bethlehem, which is only a few miles away. And so Herod comes to the wise men and he says to them, Hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, listen, guys, you go find him, and you come and give me word again, and I am going to worship him just like you are. So they're kind of pumped at that point about it. They don't know he's a bad dude yet. They get on their camels, they get on their horses, and they, they start, you know, riding. And as they leave, verse number 10, the star starts shining again. And notice what happens when they saw the star shining again as they leave Jerusalem. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I want you to learn this this morning. They celebrated the opportunity to worship. They celebrated the opportunity to worship. They weren't doing this. Like, oh, man, we got to go again. How many church services can you have in a month? How many can you have in a year? No, they, they didn't look at this as drudgery. They looked at this as a delight. They celebrated the opportunity to worship. Well, how do you see that, Pastor? Well, look at the word. Verse number 10. They saw the star. They rejoiced. That means to be glad. It means to be really glad. They rejoiced. Now, you know that Hebrew writers don't have exclamation points, so when they say the same thing in different ways, that's the greatest way of drawing emphasis to the text or the, the idea, they rejoiced. What did they rejoice with? The Bible says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Exceeding very much great. The word megos, large. It's where we get our word mega. They, they rejoiced with exceeding mega joy. Rejoicing gladness. They were, if we could say it this way, they were pumped to worship the Christ child. They were pumped to find the one who was born king of the Jews. This was not a drudgery to them. This was an absolute delight to them. They loved it. Can I tell you, if you're walking with God, you're going to love being with God's people. You're going to love being with God's people. Now, some days are better than others. Some services are better than others. Sometimes the preacher is better than at other times. But you'll always enjoy being with God's people if your heart's right with God. You'll always. Why? Because we're worshiping together. We're celebrating Christ. We're worshiping him. We've come together and these men teach us the, the absolute joy that we should have every time we come together to worship. I've been, as Bernie said earlier, I've been married 27 years 
I've been in ministry two months longer than I've been married. So I've been in ministry 27 years less, just a couple months in November. November uh, 25th, uh, I was hired in ministry. So just really under, just over a month, a month and a day longer. I was hired in ministry. And when I first started serving the Lord, uh, it was sometimes a little bit of work. I had discipline, had to carry me to church. And, and, and then I would have better days and less better days and better days and less better days. And now, 27 years and a month and a day into it, I tell you what, I can't wait to be in church. Sometimes I honestly think, like, I just wish I could come here all the time. If I could get you guys to come every day, I think I would have church every day. I wouldn't have to be the guy that preached every day. We could listen to Bernie preach, and it probably wouldn't be very good, but we could listen to him nonetheless. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Uh, Bernie's a great preacher. He's preaching next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. And I better say that, right? Um, no, he absolutely is. I love, to, I love to hear Bernie preach. I love his heart for the Lord. I was just teasing him. Um, but I absolutely, I love coming to God's house. I don't understand people who say, I really love Jesus. I just don't love going to church. How, how do you do that? How, how, how does that happen? Because the church is his bride. It's the gathering place of the saints. It's the place of corporate worship. It's the place where we really, now you need to have private worship in your life, but you absolutely must have corporate worship in your life. You need to worship the Lord privately tomorrow and reading the word and praying the scripture and listening to godly music. And then, you, But you also need to be worshiping the Lord corporately here in the church. I think I could worship God anywhere. Well, if you could, then he would have said that. And you could privately worship him anywhere, but he does not give us the latitude for corporate worship to happen anywhere we want it to happen. They were excited to worship. Verse number 11, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The spirit of giving was a necessary part of worship for them. The spirit of giving was a necessary part of worship for them. One commentator said this, their giving was not so much an addition to their worship as an element of their worship. The gift was an expression of worship, giving out of the overflow of adorning and grateful hearts. Right worship is always and must be the only basis for right giving and right living and right service. Giving that is generous but done apart from a loving relationship with God is empty giving. Learning that is orthodox and biblical but is learning apart from knowing and depending on the source of truth is empty knowledge like that of the chief priests and the scribes service that is demanding and sacrificial but done in the power of the flesh or for the praise of men is empty service their giving was not based on an emotional response or a an emotional need their giving was born out of a heart of worship the spirit of giving is a necessary part of worship what they give? They gave gold. Throughout history, gold has been considered the most precious of metals and the universal symbol of material value and wealth. They gave frankincense. Frankincense was a, a costly oil, perfume, beautiful smelling incense that was used only for the most special of occasions. It was used in the grain offerings at the temple and the tabernacle. It was used in certain royal processions. It was used at some weddings if people could afford it. 
Some of the early church fathers suggested that, that, that frankincense was an, an incense of the deity. It was very, very costly and smelled very, very beautiful. And then they gave myrrh, which was also a perfume, not quite as expensive as frankincense, but nevertheless value of great value. And some commentators suggest that myrrh represents the gift for a mortal, emphasizing Jesus' humanity. The gifts, gold, represented royalty, frankincense, his deity, myrrh, his humanity. And, and many believe that, that the amount that these men gave or what sustained Joseph and Mary through their time in Egypt and their move to Nazareth and all of that, that it was a very, very, very costly gift that they gave to the Lord. This was not some cheap little penance that they gave but this was extremely valuable you see the spirit of giving is a necessary part of worship worship without giving is fake worship without giving is fake I'm going to be bold today and say it this way you can't worship and withhold the tithe oh no we went to worship service well if you didn't give you didn't worship you pretended you played. I'm not trying to be rude. I think you know my heart. I'm just trying to be biblical. You, you can't worship and withhold that which is the Lord. The Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. He gives to us 100% of what we have. Every good and perfect gift comes from above for the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And if God gives to us that which is his, and then he says, I want you to give back to me the first 10%. And you don't give that first 10% back, then you violated worship at, at its very core because worship is submission and obedience. You can't disobey what you worship. You can't do reverence to, to something you, you reject when you reject their authority. Giving is a, is a necessary part of worship. And, and really, giving proves our love, the Bible says. The fact that, that pastors have to preach on giving is indicative of the hearts of some of the people that have to hear. We really ought not have to even speak on the subject. Every follower of Christ should give. Number one, we have the example of Christ. No pastor should ever have to get up and talk about giving. Now, we do all the time. Why? Be, because the, the, sometimes folks love money more than they love Jesus, and we have to remind them of that. And worship demands giving. One of the most appealing, if you will, and this is subjective for sure, one of the most appealing Christmas stories is that of a mall in the night visitors. It's an Italian-American opera that was written by Minetti, and, and it features the now, three wise men. That's how the, the, the opera goes. Now, there were much more than three wise men, but just I want you to get the story. The three wise men are traveling from the east. They're traveling to the west in, in this opera, and they, they're, they're going to hear uh, or going to see the Christ child. They're on their way to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem, and they come to a home, and as was the custom in that day, they would knock on the home, and the homeowner would often let them reside either in the house or in the stable area or something like that and give them, uh, they would buy food, they would buy water, whatever the need was. And, and these three wise, or the, these wise men were traveling as the opera goes, and they come onto this house and they knock on the door and this uh, young boy and woman live in the house, this widowed woman, they live in the house. And the little boy's name was Amal and, 
he was crippled and he could not walk without a crutch. They come in the house and they knock on the door and his mother says to him, Amal's mother says to him, Amal, go answer the door. And he goes and he answers the door and he comes back running. And, or, well, he's not running, but he's going as fast as he can. And he tells his mother, Mom, there's a king outside. And his mom yells at him, stop it, don't mess around, as mothers are prone to do to young, innocent, loving boys. And the knock continues, and she yells at him, now you go answer the door. And he goes, and he answers the door, and he comes back to his mom, and he says, mom, there's, there's two kings at the door. And she really gives him a lashing then, just really yells at him then, stop playing tricks on me. Like most mothers, she's not very open to good humor. And stop it and and so he does takes his tongue lashing and the knock happens again and so it happens again and he she yells at him go answer the door and he goes and he answers the door and and it's three wise men and now they don't care about them all they just walk into the house because they could hear the argument going on people can hear you inside the house when they're outside you know that right and uh, they go inside the house, and, and the mom is just taking them back in this poor, dirty little house. I don't mean dirty in a bad way, but just they don't have much, and, and they don't have its dusty area and sandy area. And, and they walk in, and they ask if they could stay, and she's intimidated by them. And, and she asks them what they're doing, and they say, we're coming to see he that is born king of the Jews. And we brought gifts for him. And she said, what'd you bring him? And they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And as the, the opera goes, the, the the mother uh, settles the, the kings down, brings him some water, brings him some food, and then she steals their gold. Well, a great commotion happens. The wise men want their gold, and they go back and forth, and finally, the wise men say, fine, keep the gold. And then they tell her what they were doing. They were taking it to the baby who was born king of the Jews, who was born savior of the world, and all of, all of the things related to the Christ, uh, the, the birth of Christ story and the mother says to them I am so sorry please 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 take your gold back and she says this if I had something to give I would but I have nothing then comes the most poignant part of the story the wise men are getting ready to leave and Amal Sensing them leaving and understanding the weight of what just happened. As the wise men are walking out the door, walks up and tugs on the coat of one of the wise men. And they say, what is it? And he says, I've decided to send the only thing I have to the Christ child. What is that? And he hands them his crutch. And they walk away. And you'll see some paintings that were painted after this where the artist includes the wise men leaning on a crutch. That's the crutch of a mall told from that story. Now, it's fanciful and fictional and all of that, but it certainly does depict the spirit of giving that is necessary for worship. I'm not waiting for something to say. I just wonder what's your spirit of giving. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Are you cheerful in your giving? We're like, oh, I have to do that. Well, then that's not worship. 
And the last thing we see, and I've got to be done, verse number 12, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Worship produces a sensitivity to God. True worship produced and produces a sensitivity to God. The wise men don't know what Herod's going to do. They have no idea what Herod's going to do. They just know, and from the reading of the text, it seems like they believed Herod, that he really was going to worship him because they, they would have been, it would have been unreasonable for them to think that somebody wouldn't worship the Christ child. But they go, they worship Christ, they give the gifts, all this that transpires, and we're not, Scripture doesn't give us insight into how long it took or, or any of that. We just know that it happened. And after they've given the gifts, they're in a dream. We assume it's at least the night after the fact at the very least. And God warns them in a dream that they would not return to Herod and they departed to their own country. Rather than going the shorter way north back to Jerusalem, they most likely would head south and they'd pass through the region of the Dead Sea, pass Masada into the modern day southern Jordan area and they would go back home. I mean, it would take years. Can I just say that worship makes you sensitive to the Lord? Corporate worship ought to make you sensitive to the Lord. And private worship, the worship that you do in the reading of the scripture and the praying of the Psalms and in the singing of Christ-honoring songs in your own heart and your own private life, that ought to make you sensitive to God. And if it's true worship, it will. I would submit to you the reason most folks, most Christians screw up their life is because of a lack of sensitivity during worship. Because if we're worshiped, the Lord's going to lead us the direction he wants us to go. He's going to confront the sin that is in our own life. He's just, he's just going to speak to us by way of conviction and the word of God to make us Christ-like. It produces, worship does, a sensitivity to the Lord. Mary and Joseph, along with the shepherds and the learned wise men, show us that communicating with the Lord needs two participants, God's participants and partners. God sends a message, but we have to be willing to receive the news and obey the message. How many times have you said in your own life, I know what God wants me to do, I just don't want to do it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to stop cussing. I don't care. That's who I am. I'm not going to start giving. I don't care. I, I want that car. I'm not going to stop dating him. I want to be married. I know he's not a believer. I don't care. That's just what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give up partying on Friday night. I'll get lit up and then I'll get hit up. I don't care. That's just what I'm going to do. I know God doesn't want me to do it. But he, he's okay with me and he'll forgive me. Better to get forgiveness than acceptance. What a hellish idea. What a devilish doctrine you live by. I, I know God doesn't want me to view porn, but I mean, there are worse things. It's not like I'm murdering anybody. You can say whatever you want to to make yourself feel better. But you have to come to this realization. You're not living a life of a worshiper. 
You're just not a worshiper. I don't care what my wife needs. I don't care what my husband's needs are. This is what I want, and this is what I want right now. A worshiper produces a sensitivity to God. You say, oh, pastor, I've done that, but I've messed up. You know what else worshipers do? Worshipers, when they mess up, they fess up. And they get it right. They just get it right. Nobody in this room is expected to be perfect. Some of you hear it and you're like, man, I guess I'm a screwed up worshiper. Well, join the crowd. Christianity is a fraternity of broken people who serve an unbroken God. And we corporately worship because sometimes we need the admonition of the word of God and the fellow saints to help us do the right thing. I I don't, like everybody else in this room, I don't always get it right. I don't always respond correctly. I I don't always, uh, (laughs) I'd like to say that I never have a bad thought and I never have a bad word come out of my mouth. My in-laws make fun of me because because I'm I'm witty and funny and Christ-like and Christ-centered. And they consider it sometimes to be offensive. Pray for them. They're from Bakersfield. (laughs) And sometimes you, you mess up. But a worshiper is going to be sensitive to God and they're going to get it right. And here's what happens when you mess up. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to your life. And a worshiper, listen to me, this is what a worshiper of God does. A worshiper of God says, yes, Lord. Okay, Lord, that's what you told me to do. That's what I'm going to do. Well, it might not work out. Doesn't matter if it works out or not. My job is not to make things work out. My job is to obey the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's my responsibility. That's what a worshiper does. A worshiper is simply sensitive to the Lord. Just simply sensitive to the Lord. You say, well, why? I don't know why. Sometimes God has me to do what he has me to do. But I want to be sensitive to him. And you know what I found in my own life? That the less sensitive that I am to the Lord the more self-centered I am. See, because we're always worshiping something. I have a friend who said there's only two options on the shelf, worshiping God or worshiping self. We're always worshiping something. We're always worshiping someone. Make no mistake. You can't worship, you can't live your life without worship. Either you're putting yourself in the place of God or God in his rightful place. Herod was a self-worshipper. Rejected Christ and ultimately had every baby in the every baby boy, two years old and under killed. The wise men who shouldn't, humanly speaking, shouldn't have known about Christ did know him, did worship him, because they were submitted and sensitive to him. Christmas and after Christmas, it's about being sensitive to Christ. Some of you are here today and the Lord is burdening your heart. You feel a tug on your heart to submit and come to Christ. Get saved today. Come to Christ today. Trust him today. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your rosary. Don't trust in your mission trip. Don't trust in your second blessing. Trust in the grace of Christ. Trust in the grace of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not your works or your rosary or or your mission trip or your second blessing. Salvation is entirely a work of Christ. 
And whether Christian, whether folks accept Christ or whether folks reject Christ, we need to adore him because he is king and we need to worship him because he is king. So are you sensitive to him? Do you have a spirit of giving? Do you celebrate opportunities to worship or church a drudgery? Is your private worship time a drudgery? Oh, that's so convicting. Do you desire to worship God? I don't know. But I pray that we would end 2021 with a spirit of worship. And I pray we would begin and live 2022 with a spirit of worship. Many of you came today because you're saying this. I need to get my walk with God back on track. It starts with sensitivity to the Lord and worshiping Him. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.